I'm Esther Amar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. This Spin, our weekly all-women of colour media panel. I'm live in 3FM studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR in Washington, D.C. We are on air nationally across the United States and internationally in Ghana and Nigeria. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. Today on The Spin, our theme is Black Women's Labour, Political, Organisational, Medical, emotional, and how that labor is honored. Our main event conversation, U.S. presidential history, the two C's, Chisholm and Clinton, Hot Topic 1, Battlefield history, Mary Seacole versus Florence Nightingale, Hot Topic 2, State of Our Union, Building Sustainable Solidarity, all of that coming up. Our contributors this week are Dr. Trevor B. Lindsay and Glinda Carr. Dr. Treva B. Lindsay is Associate Professor of Women's, Gender and Sexuality Studies at The Ohio State University, and she contributes articles to Cosmopolitan Online. Glenda Carr is a political strategist, advocate and co-founder of Higher Heights, a national organization working to elect more black women to political office. Welcome, welcome, ladies. How are you doing? How are you, Esther? Time for our main event conversation, Making U.S. Presidential History, The Two C's, Chisholm and Clinton. Hillary Rodham Clinton made history on June 7, 2016, at New York's Brooklyn Navy Yard. Listen. And it may be hard to see tonight, but we are all standing under a glass ceiling right now. But don't worry, we're not smashing this one. Thanks to you we've reached a milestone. The first time, the first time in our nation's history that a woman will be a major party's nominee for the President of the United States. Tonight's victory is not about one person. It belongs to generations of women and men who struggled and sacrificed and made this moment possible. June 7th in 2016 was partially made possible by this day, January 25th, 1972, and by this woman, Shirley Chisholm. On that day, in Concord Baptist Church, also in Brooklyn, history was made when Shirley Chisholm said these words. I stand before you today as a candidate for the Democratic nomination for the presidency of the United States of America. I am not the candidate of black America, although I am black and proud. I am not the candidate of the women's movement of this country, although I am a woman, and I'm equally proud of that. I am not the candidate of any political bosses or fat cats or special interests. I stand here now without endorsements from many big name politicians or celebrities or any other kind of prop. 
I do not intend to offer to you the tired and glib cliches which for too long have been accepted part of our political life. I am the candidate of the people of America. An African-American woman who sought the Democratic nomination to become president of the United States. The first woman to do so in America's history. The first black person to do so. The first black woman to make this American political history. Unbought and unbossed, Chisholm's journey shaped Clinton's victory. In a BBC News.com article from January this year, the writer lamented how few people knew Chisholm's name and how little reference was being made to her in connection with Hillary Clinton. In that same piece, the writer interviewed a Florida social entrepreneur who created the first Shirley Chisholm Day designed to educate Americans about Shirley Chisholm and how her work paved the way for President Barack Obama and Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton. Higher Heights, an organization working to elect more black women to political office, featured a piece by scholar and author Kelly Dittmar on this same issue. In the piece, Dr. Dittmar writes, and I quote, Over seven months, Chisholm competed in primaries nationwide, ultimately receiving nearly 431,000 votes in 14 states. She was not deterred by her long odds of victory. She campaigned heavily in at least seven states and fought for a place in televised primary debates, emphasizing her role in keeping her opponents honest. Importantly, Chisholm fought for her voice to be heard in a field of white men. In reflecting on Clinton's historic milestone, it's important to recognize the shoulders on which Clinton stands. Shirley Chisholm was among the trailblazers and ceiling breakers willing to confront racism, sexism and disregard by many in order to disrupt perceptions that the presidency was a space entitled only to white men. She challenged expectations about the face and voice of American politics and embodied the inclusivity and empowerment upon which her candidacy was founded. Clinton continues Chisholm's work this year, unquote. There's also a global context to Clinton's clinching the Democratic nomination and possibly becoming America's first woman president. In 2015, there were 18 women leaders around the world, including 12 heads of government and 11 heads of state, according to United Nations data. In Europe, Asia and Africa, women have led nations. In the United Kingdom, Margaret Thatcher was the first woman to become prime minister. In Africa, Ellen Sirleaf Johnson became our continent's first head of state as Liberia's president. Australia's first woman prime minister is Julia Gillard. India's Benazir Bhutto made history as its first woman president. And here in Ghana, Nana Kanedu Ajiman Rawlings was, like Clinton, a first lady who sought to become her nation's first woman president. Let's talk the two C's, Chisholm and Clinton, and honoring black women's history-making political labor. Dr. Treva B. Lindsay, let me start with you. I'm very intrigued by this topic and the way which this frames how history is being made in the United States specifically. And I love that you brought up this global context because it's so important to see in a global context how far the United States is behind and recognizing truly the power and the impact of women heads of state. So I think this is a really important moment for thinking about that. And I also want to add in a third seed to this conversation and Charlene Mitchell, who actually ran black women, first black woman to run for president in 1968 under the Communist Party ticket. And to think about how this trajectory for a woman in our nation to be elected, where she has to move politically in order to be a viable candidate. So we have 
Charlie Mitchell in 1968, who runs for the communist on the Communist Party ticket, receives a thousand over a thousand votes in four states, and she's also the first woman in history to have her name on a general election ballot. And this is still owed to a black woman. So I just want to situate her in this legacy as well, and kind of works with the C you say, Charlene, even though it's not the last name, um, in framing this. And then also thinking about Margaret Wright, who runs for the People's Party in 1976, another black woman. And so there is this trajectory of women who are able to push us to the left to thinking about more liberal and progressive ideals um, within the political imagination, within the political landscape in the United States. And I think Chisholm certainly was up against something very particular in that she was not well supported by black men and she was not well supported by white women. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of coalitions form around Hillary Clinton as she takes off the general election um, after the Democratic National Convention this, um, this summer. Because I think what is happening is how we see these long-standing tensions, fissures, breaks, not only along race and gender lines, but also along these political party lines and this divestment of many from this idea of the Democratic or Republican Party, but seeing what are the other parties that offer this and why, in fact, the first two of the first black women to run actually ran outside of this two-party system. Even within this, you see black women questioning and interrogating the viability of such a system to really recognize the unique conditions of black women in the United States. Powerful. Glenda Carr, your thoughts? So one, I always um, commend you, Esther, of pulling out and highlighting these stories and putting them in uh, the 21st century context. So obviously, you know, Higher Heights uses Shirley Chisholm and and her bold leadership as a framing to our work to um, build black women's political power from the voting booth to elected office. You know, Chisholm's legacy is one that takes into context that everyday black women are leading. Here's a woman who, you know, had been a teacher and worked um, around child care advocacy who decided to step off the sidelines and run for office initially starting in the New York State Assembly uh, and then boldly stepping out and running for Congress and being the first black woman ever uh, to be seated in Congress in the United States House of Representatives um, and providing a voice that was completely void at that time in 1972. Fast forward to 2016, black women are still severely underrepresented in American politics. Currently, there are 18 voting members of the U.S. House of Representatives, and there are zero black women in the U.S. Senate. There hasn't been a black woman um, seated in that body for over 20 years, and there's only been one elected, which was Carol Mosley Braun in 1992. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done by um, building on her legacy. I do like the full circle moment of the notion that Shirley Chisholm announced her candidacy from Brooklyn, New York, and presumptive nominee uh, for the Democratic Party, Hillary Clinton, had her speech two weeks ago from the Brooklyn Navy Yard. What's interesting, though, when you look at some of the comparisons of her paving the road is obviously the presumptive nominee, Hillary Clinton, has strong support across the country and very strong party support. At the time, Shirley Chisholm ran for for president. Um, You know, she had no support. She ran kind of against the party. Um, But one of my um, kind of fun facts um, in looking at her historic run to the Democratic National Convention where she um, was nominated from the floor, she actually was able to garner 152 delegates um, in 1972. And, um, John Kasich in 2016 actually garnered 161 delegates. 
Um, and so the notion of talking about her viability as a, as a candidate um, and questioning what her viability was, she clearly served a role in ensuring that she was able to elevate the voices of diverse communities and underrepresented community, and, and, but also provided the opportunity to coalesce um, a coalition of women um, in particular that weren't just African-American women. Um, she had women of all ethnicities working to support her candidacy. I'm really struck about the that point you make, Glinda, about the location that Hillary Clinton clinches the Democratic nomination and makes a speech in the same place that uh, Shirley Chisholm um, declared her bid to run as the Democratic nominee. And I'm, the reason I'm struck is that the location is the same, but Shirley Chisholm isn't named in Clinton's speech, although she refers to, she does contextualize and refers to the um, women and men who have paved this road and allowed her to um, honor the victory in the way that she um, she she did. Um, but I was I also think about this idea of um, generalizing labor when it's actually important to be specific and to name names and to honor who did what when as a way of recognizing the importance of history in a moment where, you know, black names matter. In addition to our lives, our, name, our names matter. Um, I also think about, I always think about it within a global sense as somebody who is sitting in um, Ghana where um, I taught a class in media about the um, uh, comparisons between Nana Kanedu Ajuman Rawlings, who... Um, was a first lady of a two-term president, Jerry Rawlings, and then sought to become president of Ghana, which is exactly the same set of um, circumstances in which Clinton sought to become um, U.S. president. And the comparisons between those spaces, and I was struck by how, how well-known Clinton's political biography is by African students. I teach international African students. And I was thinking about how well-known Hillary Clinton is in this space. And I was thinking about teaching that same class in America and how many people would even know Nana Kanedu Ajiman Rawlings' name, much less the political power that she amassed engaging everyday Ghanaian women. And the reason that matters to me is because when I think about a, the leader of a nation like Margaret Thatcher, as somebody who was born in London, her premiership, although it was historical, was a nightmare for everyday, certainly people of color, black and brown people in the United Kingdom and working class people across the board, the, the desecration of um, social policies that really created so many problems for working people in the UK meant that her gender created history and her policies created nightmares for so many people. And for me, that context matters um, because I think, I mean, Clinton on so many policy levels, for me, is problematic. But I honor the his, the historic moment of her marking the clinching of uh, being the first woman to run as the nom the nominee for a major U.S. party. And I wonder what you think about the context of marrying the um, the policy with the person, and what that says for us in this moment when the um, even the the coordinated activist fighting is about beginning to marry the people and the protests with what's happening in the policy spaces in order that we are even more connected to creating the kinds of 
um, having the kinds of people in office who are advocating for the kinds of policies that will transform our lives. And we know the big concern with Clinton has been um, clearly claiming the space that Sa Bernie Sanders created regarding progressive politics and progressive policy, but concerned that that, that is campaign rhetoric and will become invisible um, governance. And I wonder what you all think about that. Starting with you, Truva. I think this is such a, I, I'm with you on this tension that I've been feeling internally with thinking about what it means to recognize this as a historical, historical moment and also recognizing my own conflict about Hillary Clinton in particular as the presumptive Democratic uh, presidential nominee. And I think um, some of that goes to this idea, I mentioned this earlier, of a lot of black women who have run for president have not run within a major political party. They've been on the Workers' Party. They've done the Green Party. I think about the ticket of Cynthia McKinney and Rosa Clemente um, running in this. And that there is a skepticism that I think we have of the system in general and what the major party system does in terms of erasing and visibilizing or even trivializing the voices of women, but in particular black, brown, poor, queer, trans um, people within this context. And I think this is a very difficult thing because I don't often think that what we see is someone like a Hillary Clinton really speaking or speaking to these audiences in significant ways and moving beyond speaking, but addressing and thinking about policy that specifically gets at the heart of the kind of structural racism that gets at patriarchy, that gets at homophobia, homoantagonism, trans antagonism. I think that's why the Sanders campaign picked up an energy because there was considerable energy, particularly around class issues that came out of that campaign. So I think about this moment in terms of a question about what does it mean to invest in a major party as black women, as women of color, knowing the limitations of this. I mean, someone running for president is essentially running to, to run American empire, which is a problematic political project that fundamentally is anti-black, anti-brown, anti-poor. And I think that contextualizing it within that context doesn't diminish the fact that it's an important moment to recognize when a woman such as Clinton gets to this position. But I think that legacy moving from Chisholm to Clinton is far more complicated. And, and we should be talking about the kinds of policies and politics that black women have articulated within that interim period between Chisholm and Clinton, but also how black women are organizing now, whether that's around electoral politics or around grassroots organizing, around state and local politics, and seeing where our power really can lie within American empire that questions and interrogates and pushes back against that. And I don't think any of the candidates at this point really speak to that question. So that focuses back on us when we get to election time. What do we politically recommit to in these moments as a new face for American empire arises? Glenda. Yeah, I think in this uh, 2016 election cycle, one thing that has become um, more clear is that black women aren't a monolithic voting bloc. Um, so oftentimes in a narrative, it's the notion that black women are going to overwhelmingly vote Democratic. Um, um, but then within that, you know, within the Democratic Party, the notion of not all of us are the same voter, um, that we have, we are looking for different um, values, uh, different um, policy um, priorities, um, candidates speak to us, should be speaking to us differently. Um, and one thing that uh, has been highlighted in this election cycle 
um, particularly on the Democratic side, is that, um, you know, black women um, are, are demonstrating their varied views on issues affecting our community um, and our voices being raised in, um, in this election cycle um, and not kind of being in one camp very early on. The question for me then lies, um, as black women, how are we going to position ourselves to get a return on investment? So what is our ROI in this election cycle, um, the return on our voting investments? Um, and that is us kind of pulling together and coalescing around issues and, and not necessarily around a candidate. Um, although we're, you know, five and a half months away from the election cycle, the notion of what do we want this next administration um, priorities to be that will affect black women in our communities and how do we um, build um, the momentum and the strategy to ensure that, that we do get a return on an investment. Um, Shirley Chisholm once said, you know, you don't make progress um, sitting on the sidelines whimpering. Um, you, made pro- you, know, you made progress by implementing ideas. Um, and so, you know, as, as African-American women, uh, this is a pivotal a point for us to ensure that our voices are continuing to be heard in this election cycle from the everyday um, woman across this country to the black women that are um, leaders of institutions. How do we ensure that this narrative shifting to this election is now going to be decided um, by white men and married white women that regardless of um, who wins in November, black women continue to still be the foundation to a winning coalition. Um, and that our vote cannot be taken for granted and that we have issues that need to rise to the top of the national debate uh, and that these candidates must address these, uh, our issues and our policy priorities in a very significant way, not just a soundbite, but some very clear policies and strategies to implement those strategies from the executive branch, but also how do we then ensure that we are engaged and um, motivated to vote on down ballot in this election cycle so that we ensure that our legislative bodies across the country have champions and candidates um, that will address our issues. And isn't that the big, big deal, the point that you make, Linda, about how do we ensure that there is a return on the investment of that vote? And so I think about all the different um, areas of black women's political labor and its power in getting people to the ballot, getting that vote out, and then securing those votes. And then I think about Malcolm X's quote that the most neglected um, woman in America is, the, the most neglected person in America is the black woman. And specifically as it relates to political office, how that power translates into investment, in this case investment essentially being policy, the translation between the ability to um, organize with, I mean, phenomenal impact and effectiveness in order to get a candidate into um, office. I'm also thinking, you know, local as well as presidential politics. And then turning that um, campaigning impact into a governing one that actually translates into policy. We've already talked about the, the, the challenge with Hillary Clinton's problematic policies on a range of um, issues that would not be good for black and brown people. And, you know, and, and kind of holding her to do more than pay lip service to Bernie Sanders' much more progressive agenda that definitely spoke to and attracted huge numbers of progressives, um, young folk and black and brown folk. So then that translation 
which I kind of feel like is the is the consistent rub between campaigning and governing that return on the investment of black women's political labor with policy that actually um, turns around black women's lives. What is the activism that needs to make that happen? Because I feel like it's the consistent, certainly when it comes to presidential politics, it's the consistent disconnect between getting the vote out and getting a return on that vote. I think of something quite honestly, around President Obama, I'll say specifically, and we first had the kind of My Brother's Keeper initiative that was committed to addressing issues facing uh, black men and boys and uh, to, a, to an extent Latino um, men and boys. And with the push of people um, such as Kimberly Crenshaw, um, the African American Policy Forum, activists, um, various activists, Black Women's Blueprint, a number of things, there's now an initiative for women and girls of color that is launched and launched with some pretty considerable um, financial backing from the federal government. And that doesn't happen without Black women staying committed and staying on the ground to demand that we be seen, we be included, that there be research, that there be questions asked, that there be people at the table who speak specifically to the lives and the intersections at which black women, black girls, black brown girls, brown women live. And I think this is really important because these kinds of pushes are made through the kind of communities that we make around these electoral politics, uh, state, local, and federal, and continuing to move within those communities that we form, these coalitions that we form, recognizing that that push has to continue a number of levels, at the grassroots level, going at the legislative level, um, having these forms with people in power at the federal government level, including the president. So, I mean, I think that's a tangible example of what can happen when we move in those states, organize around these issues, but always understanding that, and I hate to say this in a very skeptical and cynical way, but I don't necessarily think that the president of the United States, right in almost anyone who has had the office, has had the best interests of black women at heart um, or at the center of their agenda. Therefore, our advocacy for ourselves is instrumental to pushing the needle. And though that may push, that push may happen only gradually, I think it's a significant push that means our voices can't be taken for granted. And I think they'll see in this election, um, as um, my student panelist is saying, that they're going to see that black women aren't just voting for the Democratic Party ticket. I think they're going to see that in a way they have not necessarily seen that before because of the consistent feeling of being let down and not seeing that shift from the campaign to actual policymaking that is in the interest of improving the living conditions, the living wages, employment, et cetera, for black women and girls. Closing thought to you, Glenda. We are living in some of the most politically polarizing times. Um, and I think uh, living in a 24-hour news cycle in social media world um, that, you know, oftentimes, you know, you, voters are taken aback. Um, political operatives will often say that this is a cliff election year, that this is the year that we must vote like our life depends on it. I will absolutely say that this is the most pivotal year that black women absolutely need to continue to show 
um, our strength at the voting booth and um, demonstrate that dem- democracy doesn't begin and end on election day. Um, that one, we should be self-organizing in the notion that particularly on the Democratic side, that millions of dollars will be spent 14 days before an election cycle kind of just to pull out what they considered a, you know, a predictable voting block, that we have you know, um, a little over a month leading into the two um, conventions, both the RNC and the DNC convention, and that we need to ensure that we are inserting our conversation in a national narrative about the issues that we care about, but that we need to be knocking on doors of our own communities and speaking in our religious um, institutions and our membership-based organizations about the importance of this election um, and about us harnessing that kind of post-Obama election um, power. I mean, people are expecting us to stay home. The notion is that in 2008 and 2012, we voted in record numbers because there was this, you know, African-American family at the top of the ticket. Um, And we need to prove that we are consistently growing voting block, um, but we need to better leverage what that our vote is going into this election cycle and then hit the ground running um, um, on Inauguration Day to, um, you know, organize and lobby around the issues that we care about and have sustainable pressure on our elected officials post-election cycle to to really implement um, ideas. But again, the executive office can't do it alone. Um, If you are not motivated about the top of the ticket, you know, there are elections across this country that are game changers that we need to be engaged in 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 getting out um, the vote and the message about these candidates across the country, but also helping to reshape city halls, state houses, um, and and, – the Capitol in, in Washington in, in, on November 8th. Black women out here bringing chains, so often literally all by themselves. I break chains up on myself, won't let my freedom ride in hell. Hey, I'ma keep on running cause the winner don't quit on themselves. That was our main event conversation. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly all-women of color media panel. I'm your host, Esther Armar. Our contributors this week are Glenda Carr and Dr. Treva B. Lindsay. This spin is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in 3FM's across studios in Ghana. Our contributors join me via NPR's Washington, D.C. studios. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, South Carolina, Mississippi, and Iowa. We are on air in West Africa on 3FM in Accra, Ghana, and on WFM 91.7, Lagos, Nigeria. And we're online via podcast. I break chains about myself, won't let my freedom ride in hell. Hey, I'ma keep on running because the winner don't quit on themselves. Time for the first of our hot topics, Mary Seacole and Florence Nightingale, black women's history-making medical labor on the battlefield. Florence Nightingale, global icon, pioneer of modern nursing practices, known as the Lady of the Lamp, a white English woman who made history building a hospital where soldiers on the bloody battlefields of the 19th century Crimea War could be treated. A statute is being erected in London's Pall Mall to honor Nightingale's labor and contribution. Mary Seacole, a lesser-known name from the bloody battlefields of that same Crimea War. 
this black Jamaican doctor and surgeon went to the front lines to tend to and save the lives of wounded British soldiers. Here's some context and history. In the mid-19th century, Britain fought a brutal and bloody war against Russia in the Crimea. The sheer scale of suffering inspired Florence Nightingale to pioneer the ideas of modern nursing. It made her an icon of Victorian virtue. But the cult of the Lady of the Lamp has cast a shadow over another hero, one of equal stature and significance. This forgotten angel of the Crimea was a doctor who became a legend among British troops at the front line. Middle-aged, illegitimate, and from the outer reaches of the British Empire, she was one of the most unlikely celebrities of the Victorian age. Her name was Mary Seacole. During the Crimea War, almost 23,000 British soldiers died. 5,000 from battle wounds. 18,000 were killed due to tropical diseases. It was in the treatment of tropical diseases that Seacole's expertise flourished. That expertise was learned from Seacole's Jamaican mother, who ran a hotel in Kingston that doubled as a hospital and who used traditional herbs in the treatment of ailments. Seacole's mother's expertise was handed to her by her enslaved African women ancestry. In 1857, Seacole's work and name was so well known, more than 80,000 people came to honor her as a Crimean war hero. She would be awarded medals by the British Army. She was the first free black woman in the British Empire to publish her memoir called The Wonderful Adventures of Mrs. Seacole in Many Lands. Now, despite all that focus, for the next century, Mary Seacole's name would be completely erased. Her contribution ignored, her work denied in British history books and by the medical orthodoxy. If Shirley Chisholm was unbought and unbossed, Mary Seacole would become a story that was unknown and untold. That was until a movement began to reclaim Seacold's place in history and actively and publicly honour her labour. So this year, a statue is being erected at London St Thomas Hospital to honour Seacold's labour. The Florence Nightingale Society is livid. They dispute Seacold's contribution, dismissing her credentials as a doctor and limiting the number of battlefields she served on and worked on. Florence Nightingale biographer Mark Bostridge argued Seacole's contribution was based on, quote, a campaign of misinformation, unquote. He added that what Seacole did, quote, took place post-battle after selling wine and sandwiches to spectators, unquote. Florence Nightingale was a white English nurse whose service during the Crimea War made global history. She is still known as the Lady of the Lamp. Mary Seacole was a black Jamaican doctor, a herbalist, a surgeon, a businesswoman, whose service on the front lines during the Crimea War saved lives, who wrote and published a memoir, and who confronted racism in the 19th century. In a letter to the Times newspaper, the Florence Nightingale Society president demanded a change in the size of Seacole's statue. A change in the statue's size? It turns out Mary Seacole's statue is bigger and taller than Florence Nightingale's. So, the Florence Nightingale Society is mad that Seacole's statue is bigger than hers. Size matters, we always knew. Let's play, or rather talk, doctors and nurses and black women's historical medical labor. Glenda Carr, let me start with you. Thank you for highlighting a black woman in history that I was not aware of. Um, very fascinated by um, her story and resonate, resonates for me for a variety of reasons, um, being a daughter of a, a Jamaican uh, immigrant to the United States. 
um, and just such a fascinating um, backstory. Um, as we pivot to the notion of size matters, like this to me is such a petty kind of um, debate that is happening around size, but there is actually more than one article that has been published in London around this debate about a woman that they don't discount was a part of um, helping during the war, but kind of her significance, an artist's interpretation of, of uh, a rendering, um, I think is is important. And the notion of size or location to me is a, a, a petty discussion of, and it doesn't discount Nightingale's legacy by honoring another woman. I'm very short and sweet with this one, Esther. <laughs> like, I just like petty. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that. Dr. Treva B. Lindsay. I think this is a, such a, at one point I wanted to kind of laugh at this, of what happens when black women are recovered in history. And, you know, it said, oh, this is about political correctness and this is being politically motivated, as opposed to really looking at these legacies, looking at um, the archive and seeing the silences in the archive around Seacole. It's because so much of what we don't know about her is due to racism and sexism. And so the way in which we recover her, of course, is um, has strong implications about what it means to think about what black women actually did. And when records don't provide that, we get these other kinds of testimonies and moments where we can get these snippets of that. I'm sure her service actually even extends beyond what we know in terms of what's being presented here. But the fact mm-hmm. that this is arising not only because of people saying, oh, she's being overestimated in terms of what she did, but that her statue is going to be bigger, that really that they're saying that this legacy is wrapped up in this kind of symbolic figuration of both of these figures and that if symbolically the statue is bigger, then her legacy must be bigger. And therefore, we are now pitting these two women against each other, whereas seeing what if the field of nursing, as we know it, of modern nursing, begins to look different and we actually think about these women as co-conspirators, as um, contemporaries Mm. who are doing a certain kind of important work. But there is this interest in this very individualistic narrative that I think pushes this as well. And secondly, I think looking back at this period, it's really fascinating to see a black woman on this side of medicine when, in fact, if we want to get very specific, this is the era in the 19th century. We're talking about Sarki Shea Bartman. We're talking about James Marion Sims, the kind of father of modern gynecology and his experimentation on African-American women. That's part of the history that we don't often think about in terms, I mean, don't often popularly talk about, I should say, in terms of this, but it is some of the most known history and that's still relatively unknown about black women during this era in relation to medicine. So having someone like Mary Seacole come to the forefront and be honored and be discussed, even if under controversial terms, I think it's really important to think about the impact black women had on medicine as opposed to just being the object on which the field of modern medicine is founded. That is, that is so powerful. And uh, it's so interesting to me when I was um, researching the, um, the, the articles and the focus being the size of the statue and equating um, size to the, the breadth of a, of, a, of a legacy. And partially um, be- because of being inborn in, in London and knowing that you have an entire national health service in London that is built on the nursing skills 
of um, women from the Caribbean, from all the islands, Jamaica and, and Antigua, Barbados, so many of those islands. There's an entire industry born on that service. But it's, it becomes bigger than that then in knowing some of the detail of the, of the history. And I love the point that you made, Trevor, about how racism um, erases the specifics of the contribution, where the archive goes silent, is reflective. And in particularly in, in, in Britain, where I always say there is the illusion of inclusion has been the massive story told and sold and resold. But the reality of how racism manifests is that the argument is about the size of the statue. But the issue is really about how the different the two women contributed. So this is what's interesting that I didn't know that I found out in researching the story, that Mary Seacole had actually applied when Florence Nightingale was putting together this kind of cohort of women to go to Turkey to um, serve uh, as nurses in this hospital at the Crimean War, that Mary Seacole was one of the women who applied to go with the Florence Nightingale cohort. And she was rejected, um, in her words, as a result of racism. Not just by the Florence Nightingale Hospital. She applied to the War Office, the Quartermaster General Department, and the Medical Department, and she was rejected by all of them. Mary Seacole was born a free woman, the daughter of enslaved African ancestors. Her mother was a herbalist who ran a hotel that doubled as a hospital where they used traditional African medicine to treat all kinds of issues um, on the island of Jamaica. And so... She comes into the world as this um, um, the child of a woman practicing medicine that, that speaks to um, the space of her origins. And so in the history, um, Mary Seacole um, created this space that was called the British Hotel that was like um, not a few miles from the battlefront of the Crimea War. Florence Nightingale's hospital, it took four days to sail to the hospital from the battlefront lines. And so the soldiers wouldn't actually go because, I mean, if you're dying on the battlefield, you're likely to be dead by the time you get to the hospital. So there were these specific differences. Mary Seacole was a businesswoman. So the way that she got the soldiers to to be able to even create the kinds of um, um, herbs and and healing and, and medicines that she created. The way she created the medicines was to sell to the soldiers, use the money that the officers um, would pay for the services that were being provided, better food, um, and then use that to actually make the medicine. So she created a business out of war that became a healing industry. Hence the 80,000 people that turned out in 1857. And also understanding the terrain that 23,000 people soldiers died. 5,000 of those were actually from battle wounds and 18,000 was from tropical diseases. So when the, um, the, the um, president of the Florence Nightingale Society tries to trivialize and erase the quality of what um, she did, it's also then negating the terrain that this black woman was working on and she diagnosed what was necessary and then was able to bring her skills and apply them accordingly. It turns out that Florence Nightingale wrote letters about Mary Seacole negating what she did as well. And those letters from a white English woman about a, a black Jamaican woman kind of reminded me of the ways in which in the antebellum South, the wives of white American and slave masters would write about who the enslaved women were on their plantation and what they did and didn't do. 
it was a specific rewriting and reimagining of what happened in order to serve their own particular narrative. And so I found an amazing documentary called The Angel of Crimea that lays out what Mary C. Cole um, um, did and why in 2004 she was named the greatest black Briton. And she's actually now taught as um, curricula in every British school in the United Kingdom. The reason why global context matter is Florence Nightingale is a name known all over the world. Mary Seacole is better known in the UK, but she's not necessarily known globally. And part of the work has been to rectify her position when it comes to the way we think globally of what this all means. I think it's also about the idea of sharing space because both Florence Nightingale and Mary Seacole performed really important services when it came to when it came to battlefields in the Crimea War. And I think it says something that you have white male historians and white women refusing to even share what was an extraordinarily vacant space when it came to this issue. Both women did phenomenal work to save lives and the way in which the negation by White Britain of Mary Seacold's work, and by White Britain I'm talking about the historians and the medical profession. I think about um, sometimes what happens with um, white feminism and black feminism and the erasure of contribution or simply overlooking or ignoring it as if that then doesn't just render it invisible. It makes you responsible for current victories. And that that has been a story that has been told again and again and again and again in many, many different ways. That is problematic. I think all the way back to Yasantua in, in Ghana and Yasantua going against the British and the rewriting of that history when it was, in fact, a Ghanaian woman who stood up, stood tall against an army and led her army to particular types of um, victory. And the naming of those women and placing them in historical um, context um, matters. I'm always looking for narratives of resistance or narratives that tell a different story about black women. I think the 19th century is often marked by, with the exception of someone like a Harriet Tubman, right, um, in terms of figures or widely celebrated figures of black women that we are the victims of history, which is important to think about the levels of victimization, trauma, brutality, dehumanization, and all that black women endured and continue to endure. But I always think it's important to find and seek out these narratives where we see black women just being badass. And I think that Mary Seacole was someone who came across to me as I was doing this research around Bartman and the African-American women who were experimented on by Sims to find out who were black women in medicine at this time and what medicine as a field comes to mean in the 19th century. Because some of the discrediting of our work, as you mentioned, Esther, pivots around the ways in which we devalue alternative forms, homeopathic medicine, herbalists as mm. practitioners and actual health practitioners. So some of this is also a questioning of black women's knowledge, black women epistemology, how black women do what we do, how we save lives and communities, and that it looks different from the ways in which those who are trained in these institutions that were only sites in which a privileged few could train. And even within that, we see this in medicine even till today, where drugs and things that are tested and procedures are used. They may be experimented on on poor and people of color bodies, but they're often geared towards medical outcomes for a white, able-bodied, thin male person, maybe a female body person. And so 
seeing that their entire bodies of knowledge that have been created by black women, folk knowledges that are so important to actually saving lives, I think it's instrumental here too. So it's not just the lack of recognition from Mary Seacole that comes with her, but the lack of the kind of knowledge she produced, transmitted, and shared on the battlefield and was able to do as she's formally trained in ways that obfuscate the way in which we think about training in medicine today. And I think this has a longer history that we need to continue to excavate. And she's such an important person in that history of saying we need to believe black women, not just as political figures, but also as health practitioners, as people who know our bodies and know how to save other people's lives and bodies as well. It shows us the work that needs to be done in broadening the, the, the historical and present narrative of black women who are leading from the, you know, average woman, you know, working at, you know, her local PTA to our organizational leaders, to our business leaders, to to our elected leaders, that black women have been leading for centuries and, and kind of what our role has played within our community, but the intersection of our groundbreaking work in leadership and what does it mean to society and that it should not be discounted in the notion that a black woman can't stand shoulder to shoulder in her accomplishments next to her white counterpart or, or her male counterpart and being able to find spaces for us to share stories and, and to push our educators to include the contributions of black women historically is important, particularly from a role modeling perspective for our young black girls of understanding the possibilities that, that exist and the diversity within, within our leadership roles in histories and in important context that um, next generation uh, needs to be aware of. We have this growing economic and electoral power. We are outpacing our our male counterparts as it relates to education obtainment, but um, we still are um, lagging behind in leadership roles, both in corporate America, on corporate boards, and in political office. That hearing these stories show the possibilities that exist for that six-year-old, you know, my my 11-year-old goddaughter. Um, so I appreciate you highlighting not only Seacole's impact and uh, contribution to our society, but also being able to create a space to talk about the possibilities that exist for Black women um, in the future. Uh, yes, Florence Nightingale Society, they need to take several seats. Like, seriously, try not to hurt yourself, because really too much like hashtag why are you mad though seriously Time for Hot Topic 2, Sustainable Solidarity. Solidarity, that word, crucial to building and sustaining social justice movements that flourish. What is the state of our union when it comes to creating, sustaining solidarity to do just that? In the Huffington Post, Black Lives Matter organizer Ellie Hearns and scholar and writer Dr. Treva B. Lindsay wrote and published a public conversation exploring and reimagining solidarity within movements when it comes to black women. Ellie Hearns wrote, and I quote, Solidarity is something our movement heart is fond of, but in reality, under the confines of white supremacy, the practice is difficult. Solidarity for black women is often in relationship to capitalism, which creates a falsehood of our ability to truly be present for each other as black women, unquote. Ellie went on to say, quote, 
Solidarity is often dictated and controlled by people with power and privilege. Before black women can be fully present in a space of community, we have to make space for folks to challenge themselves, to practice solidarity, or challenging solidarity's deep entrenchment in power and privilege, which speaks to the emotional labor that is often disregarded that black women have to do. Dr. Treva B. Lindsay wrote, and I quote, When we are literally fighting to survive and live, how do we address our emotional states? I think we must develop an ethics around the reality that we are often not well and how we take care of ourselves and one another. We are often emotionally unjust to ourselves. I'm thinking here of Esther Armar's work on emotional justice, unquote. Sustainable solidarity is a major part of balancing activism work, love and life for black women, for black people. On June 27th, at New York's Manhattan Dwyer Cultural Center, panelists will explore, discuss, and confront this very issue in an emotional justice summit in partnership with The Spin and the Ford Foundation called State of Our Union. Panelists are scholar and writer Dr. Brittany Cooper, veteran cultural critic and author Joan Morgan, and award-winning journalist, editor, author, and activist Asha Bendele. The moderator is me, Esther Armour, and it's a first-come, first-serve audience of women and men. Let's talk sister-to-sister, sustainable solidarity. Dr. Treva B. Lindsay. I had such a, a wonderful time doing this piece with my sib. Uh, we got asked by Darnell Moore to do a conversation with one another, particularly uh, between cisgender black women and trans black women and what we thought about this. And having been connecting more to movement work in the last couple of years, I've been questioning what solidarity really means or what we mean when we say it and then what we mean when we practice it. And I was thinking, is there a way to think beyond solidarity as a as this term and is it about thinking beyond it as a term or putting it into practice in more emotionally honest ways? And I have to thank you, Esther, for giving me the language to begin thinking about what I was seeing as these tensions within the space of solidarity, that so much of this work is about how much and what Mm -hmm. we bring into these spaces. We bring our pain, we bring our trauma, we bring our past experiences and collectives, our past experiences and our families and our circles and our networks and among our loved ones into these spaces and then are asked to trust one another. And so many things in our society tell us not to trust one another, not to believe in one another, that you have to think about yourself. And those messages are recurring and really are reverberating messages on a daily basis, if not moment to moment. And so the fight against that and to come together actually is something so revolutionary. And I think we have to first be self-reflexive about what it means to say, I am going to trust another blank person, fill in for me, black woman. And I'm going to trust that even if we have differing goals, and I do think there are some, solidarity does pivot around having some similar sense of a goal. And for me, that's always freedom and justice um, as a central point, but that we have different ways that we're thinking about this, that we can have some real conversations about that. But I can also say within that solidarity, I need to be checking in with you. I need to care about you and your humanity. We can't make solidarity a space in which we become dehumanized beings that are just moving, 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 and discussing and acting and working, but we're not actually taking care of ourselves. And I mean that in terms of beyond self-care, but showing up for one another. I don't want self-care 
to get us off of the hook for doing the emotional work of showing up for one another as well as showing up for ourselves, which I think are foundational elements to sustainable solidarity, to taking the pulse on what is our emotional state of being as individuals and then as a collective and being able to say, mm-hmm. this is why we have healers, this is why we have therapists, this is why we have our spiritual practices to be intact and within these phases of solidarity so that they can actually be sustainable and affirming spaces for us to occupy. I wholeheartedly agree that, you know, the uh, emotional wellness of black women doing this work, um, black women don't put ourselves first. We don't do that necessarily in our families. It's it's, it's kind of what we've done. It's what we've seen our great-grandmothers do, our grandmothers do. Um, and many of us are hurting emotionally. Many of us are physically not doing well or not taking care of our bodies, but pushing through, being able to just, like, sit still and go, hey, sis, take some time for yourself. Um, have you checked on this? Um, the amount of people that I know just in my inner circle that are are, are struggling with health issues and still struggling to, to put their selves first um, um, is important. If we are going to, you know, stay in this fight for the long run, one, we're stronger to, together, but we're stronger when we are emotionally and, and healthy. Um, and, you know, I do this work, you know, nine to five. It's something that I absolutely believe in. And whenever I am in spaces with black women, I'm fueled by their stories and their energy. Um, and, you know, one thing that we do with Higher Heights is the notion of convening the unlikely partners and bringing, um, you know, the unlikely individuals to make sure that they know that they have a seat at the table and to build that that network of black women across the country uh, to transform our communities. So it is State of Our Union and Emotional Justice Summit, Monday, June 27th, 6.30 p.m., Dwyer Cultural Center in Manhattan with Dr. Brittany Cooper, Joan Morgan, Asha Bandele. The moderator is me, Esther Armour, and the event is for women and men. It's first come, first get in. All the details are on the SPIN Facebook page. That's your hour. Thank you to Dr. Trevor B. Lindsay and Glenda Carr. Thanks, ladies. Thank you to the SPIN production team, sound editor Mark Torres, distributor Loretta Rucca, and the AAPRC. Put the SPIN on your regular podcast rotation. The SPIN, your hour of talk where smart is also and always sexy. I'm your host, Esther Armour. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.